Good morning. Welcome again to Morning Devotions. I'm Pastor Summerall, the pastor of the Cathedral of Praise. It is such a blessing to get to spend this time with you every morning. We do it live. Yes, I will be honest, it's a lot more pressure to do it live because there's no retake. There's no stumbling over a word. So, Jong, let's tape that again. It's just what you see is what you get. So there is a lot more pressure with it. But to me, it's, it's so important that as we go through this time, we walk through this together. And it's not just here in our own beloved nation. We've got Pinoys scattered in Australia, in Norway, in Sweden, in Germany, in Canada, in New Zealand. I mean, if you saw the people who are contacting us, and those of you overseas, go ahead and, and go in there on Facebook and let us know that you're there. But it is shocking when we see the analytics, the tens of thousands, literally over 100,000 people oftentimes that are watching us in the morning and the evening services. So... It is humbling, <laughs> to, to say the least. Uh, Sister Bev asked me the other day, she said, Sweetheart, knowing that so many people are talking, does it make you nervous? And listening to you, does it make you nervous? And I said, that's not the thing that makes me nervous. I'm going to tell you a little secret about me. There's never been a sermon I've ever preached in my life, anywhere, that my stomach didn't hurt before I preached. Now, some people would say that's your leftover shyness manifesting. Yeah, maybe. But it's not about the size of the crowd. It's always about, can I get this right? People are depending on me. The most common prayer that I pray before I ever teach is, Lord, please give me words. Words that will help the people. Words that will lift the people. This is the cry of our hearts. We have our Kababayim, not just here in our own nation, but all over the world, and they're struggling right now. This is, this is something we've never been through. We've never walked this journey before. And as a pastor, I want to lead you in paths of righteousness. I, I don't want to lead you in paths of Kawawa, and I don't want to lead you. This is why I was teaching you the other day. Hey, listen, folks. God does not bless the sitting on our butt. God blesses the work of our hands. So let's get a few little ideas and let God bless the work of our hands and bring blessings and put food on the table of our families. Now, I can say that because we walk through poverty together. We, we know what it takes to get through this. We know how to sow the daily seed. We've done this through the years. There are some things we do understand about this season. So if I get in your face a little bit, you don't need koala right now. You need clear direction. This is how I can make decisions for my family. And some of the passages we're going to get into today really, really deal with some of that. Let's open up our hearts right now in prayer. Father, we come in Jesus' name. Father, I just ask, as we started to teach last night, you're the God who gives endurance. You're the God who gives encouragement. You're the God who gives a spirit of unity. Father, I ask for those three gifts to flow into the heart of every one of our families. Let a spirit of unity pull together. Cause every family to pull together right now. No more arguing, no more debating, no more high blood, but every family member. Give a spirit of unity right now into every home. There are brothers and sisters, Lord, that, Lord, it's, this has been a discouraging time. They've just gotten bad news from their companies. 
Some of them have been laid off and told that when they come back, they're just going to pick up their final checks. Lord, give the gift of encouragement. Give that gift you promised in Romans. Give the gift of endurance, Father. Let us be a people of cheerful persistence. I ask for those gifts to flow into our heart, Lord. These are important gifts. Father, please, in your grace and in your mercy, grant these gifts into the heart of your children today. To make it through this, Lord, we need these gifts. We desire these gifts. Let the gift of cheerful persistence, let the gift of encouragement, let the gift of spirit of unity flow into every heart and every family. And Father, I ask for creative ideas today. Ideas that maybe they've never even dreamed of, but little talents that you put in their life that they're there for just such a time as this. Little abilities you place in their life that are just for such a time as this. Help them see those things, Father. Help them discover the staff in their hand. Help them discover the little flower, the little oil in their hands. Help them discover the little things that you have placed in their hands that are going to walk them through this situation and see food on the table for their families. I thank you for it, Father. Oh, Boshali Andarabakata. Soloromokoshali Handiasatoromokoriata. Your grace, Lord, your mercy upon every family in Jesus' name. And Father, for those that aren't feeling well, they can't go to a doctor right now. They, they can't go to the hospitals right now. They're overcrowded. But Lord, we come to you, the great physician. We ask for your healing, Lord. We don't turn to you as option B, Lord. We've been brought back to faith. You're always option A. We come to you and I ask right now for healing. Healing to flow into the bodies of each of your sons and daughters right there in their homes this morning. Father, for those that have had heart problems, healing. Oh, Father, in the name of Jesus, let your healing flow. For those that have had strokes, Father, they haven't been able to go in for their physical therapy. <laughs> Lord, I ask that you be their physical therapist today, that you raise them up and help them walk. Let all those nerve endings come back together again, Father, and let those Lolas and Lolas walk in the name of Jesus. Oh, Father, let that glaucoma just be reduced in the name of Jesus. Let those cataracts just leave. Let them just, just fade away and brightness and clarity come back to those eyes again in the name of Jesus. Father, even down to the little fevers, Jesus, when you walked into Peter's home, you saw his mother-in-law lying there with a fever and you rebuked it. And she got up and served. Father, we ask in Jesus' name, for the rebuking of all of those fevers. Let those fevers just disappear right now in the name of Jesus. Let those temperatures come back down to normal right now in the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you. Father, some of the stomachs have been kind of upset because some of the food has not been as fresh. Lord, just let healing come to their insides. Let all that stomach and let all those intestines just come healed and strong. Lord, you promised that if we'd eat any deadly thing, it shall not harm us. We haven't done it on purpose, Lord. 
Father, just let healing flow into all of the insides of your people. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Well, let's start with Psalms chapter 91 today. I always tell you that whenever I have a spiritual battle, it's like God gives me a passage of Scripture. And this is the passage. This, this is the battle cry for such a time as this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness, his faithfulness. <laughs> not your ability, not your strength. His faithfulness, not even your immune system. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. I like that. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Faithful is he who has promised. All right, let's open up our hearts and stand with me, please. And let's worship the Lord together.
I've been asking you to send in testimonies of little things, not testimonies of houses and lots and cars and farms and factories, but testimonies of things that put food on the table. Because most of you are fine. Yes, I understand. But some of our families, it's no work, no pay. Some of our families, they're struggling right now. And this is now the fifth week of this lockdown. And when there's no work, no pay, Reserves are getting pretty low and families are struggling. And so we've tried to begin to share first verbally and now with, with videos, testimonies. Now, if you've got a testimony, just sit down with your little cell phone and, and just make a selfie video of yourself. It doesn't have to be all fancy. You don't have to read the words off the wall and try to figure out what to say. But just sit there, Tagalog, English, whatever, uh, you know, just Taglish. Maybe not Ilocano, maybe, well, Cebuano would be fine, and Ilocano would be fine, yeah. Just kind of mix it up a little bit. But whatever you feel comfortable in, and just talk from your heart about, look at what Jesus did for me. Because these little testimonies are helping people. All right, let's go to one of these testimonies now. I'm Sister Mayette Villena. I'm Mayette Villena. We are both leaders in South Campus. At the same time, Asher at 10 a.m. in Main Campus. March 15 po nag-start yung uh, quarantine. So, na-stop na rin po yung work na asawa ko. Eh, yun po is no work, no pay. So, inisip ko po kung saan namin kukunin yung pang-araw-araw namin pangangailangan. Nagbigay po si Lord ng idea sa akin. Before kasi, uh, nagbibenta na rin po ako ng mga kakanin, mga lumpia. Binigyan ako ni Lord ng wisdom in idea na ipost ko ulit siya sa FB. So, start noon, marami po yung nagko-comments, marami nag-message, mag-order ng mga pinupost kong mga uh, binibenta. Nagpapasalamat po ako kay Lord. On time po siya, lagi sa mga pangangailangan namin. Uh, hindi po dumating sa point na nag-order po ako kung ano po yung 
kakainin namin the next day. Kasi God is good po. Binigyan niya po ako ng wisdom, in idea. Ito po ang promise ng Lord sa Pilipian 4.19. In my God, God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. God can give us wisdom and ideas. He can, He can do, do it also for you. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my friends, sometimes it's just figuring out how to price something because you saw how somebody else priced it. Oh, we've got so many testimonies coming for you. But please, if you have a testimony, send it to me, send it to your district pastor, send it to Sister Bev. Just sit there with your phone and make a little video and send it to us. We'll edit it together. Don't worry. We'll make you look good. And, well, we'll make you look as good as we can, all right? Because, you know, it's like with me sometimes with the hair sticking out. Don't look good. But we'll clean things up and help you out. But please, just open your heart. And that's the most important thing, sincerity. Just open your heart and share with us what God did for you. All right, let's pick up our reading today in Luke chapter 19, beginning with verse 11. Now, I want you to notice very clearly the first phrase. As they heard these things, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Now, look at that with me, please. As they heard these things, as they heard the people grumbling against Jesus for sitting down in Jericho at Zacchaeus's house, as they heard Zacchaeus, this wealthy, famous sinner, powerful influence in the area, he's the chief of tax collectors, this wealthy, influential sinner, as they heard him care about Jesus's name and about Jesus's reputation. And he did not want his past to tarnish Jesus's present. Ah, he did not want anybody to think badly of Jesus because of his present. He stood up and let everybody know how much he had changed and what a new life that he had. Now, we talked about that yesterday. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Two reasons. Number one, because he was near to Jerusalem. And number two, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he said, I'm going to teach you something. Because number one, we're just about to reach the goal. And I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die there. And I need to prepare your hearts for the hearts of these people that we are about to encounter. He said, you're going to need to understand their hearts. So let me prepare you for what's coming. And he said, secondly, because they supposed the kingdom of God, the authority of God was going to appear immediately. And they needed to understand that first, Jesus had to suffer. First, he would come as a suffering servant. Then, then he will return as a conquering king. Now, again, they have to learn that Jesus is going to go away and come back again one day. Now, understand that as we move into this parable. He said to them, A nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, he was going to be the king of that area. But in order to receive his kingship, he had to go to a far country to receive the authority to come back and rule in that area. Now, the people understood this because, for instance, if, if you were going to be like King Herod, who ruled over the Galilee, you had to get your authority from Rome. And from time to time, King Herod had to go to Rome. He had to go there to be appointed as king. So they understood this. This was part of their lives. So he said, listen, you have to understand. 
sometimes you have to go away for a while and then you come back and rule. So he said, understand this truth. A nobleman went to a far country. He was a nobleman. He wasn't a king. He did not have authority to rule in a nation. He was just a nobleman. To a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So Jesus is coming back. Calling ten of his servants. Now he chose ten servants. And he gave them ten minas. Now ten mina, a mina is like a talent. Okay? He gave them ten minas. Each mina is about a talent. And he said to them, Engage in business until I come. Now, notice, he is a nobleman. He does business, so he's trained these men in business, so he gives them each an allotment of money, and he says, now I want you to do business with this until I come back. This is what I trained you to do. Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, now he has authority, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what had been gained by doing business. Now, I want you to notice there's two groups of people being dealt with here. First, the ten servants, and then secondly, the citizens who did not want him to be king. Now, let's start by dealing with the ten servants. As soon as he comes back, the first thing he does is call them to give an account. Because he's after his money? No. Because you'll see in a few minutes, he's about to give out authority. He's about to delegate authority over cities in his kingdom. Now, I want you to understand a simple principle here, because some of you are living this right now. He's, he had given them a test so that he could make leadership decisions upon his return so that he could decide who will be faithful, so that he could test their faithfulness and make decisions about who to delegate authority to, he gave them a test. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to see about this test. This was a test in an unsupervised environment, and secondly, it was a test of productivity. It was a test in an unsupervised environment. Nobody made them get up and work every day. Nobody supervised them every day. And it was a test of productivity. Now, it amazes me how people want positions and they want authority. But they've never proven themselves yet. He was proving these people. Now, I want you to get this. And I told you I was going to say some strong things today. Many of you are WFH, work from home. We have a new acronym to add to all of our other acronyms. Work from home, WFM. Or WFH, work from home. Many of you are WFH, you work from home, and your bosses are watching you. When this is over, there are many companies that are pushing a reset button. They're making decisions about how can we scale back expenses because we don't know what the business environment is going to be like after this. We don't know how much work there is to be done after this. We don't know whether the government will loosen things up immediately or whether it's going to be a slow rollback to normal life. And businesses are making decisions. How many employees do we really need? How many department heads do we really need? Do we, do we really need these people to do this? And what many of you don't realize is that allowing you to work from home in an unsupervised environment and then testing your productivity in this unsupervised environment 
is what will be the decision maker for when work resumes. It's amazing to me. People say, oh, Pastor Summerall is ignoring that person. I'm not ignoring them. I'm testing their productivity in an unsupervised environment. If you don't wipe their sipon every day, if you don't tell them what to do every day, will they be productive? Because if they cannot be productive by themselves as an individual, if they cannot rule their own life as an individual and be productive in an unsupervised situation, how can they, how can they have greater authority and greater responsibility telling other people what to do? If you, if you cannot control your own life and be productive, your own time and be productive, your own assets and be productive, how can you be productive as a leader leading other people? So again, the principle is this. He put them to test, put them to the test in an unsupervised environment. And the purpose of the test was to test productivity, personal productivity in an unsupervised environment. So when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what had been gained by doing business. Now, he wasn't asking them to govern yet. He only asked them to show productivity in what he had already trained them to do, business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to them, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Now notice, promotion did not come from politics. Promotion came from product activity in an unsupervised environment. Please just get a hold of that and let that get drilled into the forefront of your thinking. Authority was given, not because of politics. Responsibility was given, not because of politics, but because of productivity, personal productivity in an unsupervised environment. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities, all right? The person who was the most productive got the most authority and the most responsibility. The person who was productive, Mejo, he got five cities. Then another came and said, Lord, here is your mina, which I laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. <laughs> now, let me just stop there. Have you ever noticed that unproductive people always blame the boss? Unproductive people always blame the system. Unproductive people always blame the company. Unproductive people live in negative attitudes. Say, so, well, Pastor Sumbo, you've never had a boss like mine. Folks, you got to understand, I worked a lot of jobs from the time I was 11 years old. I can tell you stories of bosses. I understand. Even when I was in high school, I worked 40 hours a week during school and 60 to 80 hours a week when there was a break, when there was no classes, holidays and things, summer vacations. So please, I've had a lot of bosses. I've had really good bosses and I've had bosses from hell. I understand. But you know what? It's not them that determines my productivity. It's my attitudes. And some of you, forgive me, you can blame everybody else for the rest of your life and live unproductive, and forgive me, 
in need. If you want to prosper, if you want to get ahead, if you want promotions, first thing you need to do is fix your attitudes. You cannot control how other people act, but you can control your attitudes. So again, notice, unproductive people are always the people who have the bad attitudes toward the boss, the bad attitudes toward the company. Fix your attitudes and your productivity will increase. He said to him, I condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Now notice, the guys who were productive had no criticism for the, for the boss. <laughs> they, they had made money. Why then did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it for myself. See, bottom line, a person with bad attitudes does not want anybody else to get ahead. See, if, if it was just a matter of laziness, stick the money in the bank. That's the lazy way to make money. Stick the money in the bank. If all you are is lazy, but you see, people with bad attitudes don't want any benefit. They don't want their actions to bring any benefit to anybody else. But you don't understand. It's by bringing benefit to others that you receive promotion. Ah. See, when you've got this negative attitude, you're not going to do anything that's going to help somebody. Well, there's no promotion. There's just termination ahead. You have to understand that by bringing benefit to the boss, by bringing benefit to the team, by bringing benefit to your department, by bringing benefit to the organization that you work for, that's where promotion comes from. But he didn't want any benefit to come. Verse 24, and he stood and he said to those who stood by, take the mina away from him. All right, there's demotion. Self-fulfilling prophecies. Bad attitude people get fired and they've got lots to say against everybody. And give it to the one who has 10 minas. There's promotion. You know, to whom much is given, much is required. But when you've been given much and you show you're responsible, you get opportunities that other people have passed up. Now, let me just throw that one at you. When you are a person who, like the guy with the 10 mina, works your butt off and you maximize every opportunity, when opportunities are taken away from others, they're given to you. <laughs> this is how prosperity comes. This is practical prosperity 101. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minus. And the Lord said, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. Why? Because they're responsible. It's not a matter of spoiling. It's a matter of responsible. You need this done. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Irresponsibility, forgive me. You don't make decisions. You don't make decisions based on pity. You make decisions based on character. Yeah, there's a problem. And nobody likes it when I say things like that. Right now, companies are making decisions on retrenching. And they're looking at people. And you know what? They may really like you. They may really, really like you. You say, my boss would never retrench me because he likes me. But when a boss has to make a decision, do I keep the people around that I like or do I keep the people around to get the job done? Excuse me. They keep the people around that gets the job done. Sip, sip does not last in hard times. Sip, sip only works in good times. 
<laughs> I'll leave that one alone for a while. Verse 27, now we come to that second group of people, the group of people that did not want him to rule. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, now notice, he has authority to reign now. He's, he went away a nobleman, he came back a king. Those who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. He said, you know what? I'm not going to tolerate this. Now, I'm not sure that Jesus is going to slaughter anybody, but he will slaughter people at the Battle of Armageddon. But I do want you to understand that when Jesus returns the second time for the millennial kingdom where he rules and reigns for a thousand years, the Bible says he will rule with a rod of iron. He will not rule with, pit, with pity. He will rule with a rod of iron. There will be no toleration of people just doing their own thing. If a nation does not bring their tribute up, their offerings, their tithe up, see, I believe in the millennium there will still be tithing. If these other nations do not bring their tithe up, their, their offerings up to say thank you for his blessings upon their land, he just says, okay, I'll withhold rain from that land. He will rule with a rod of iron. So Jesus has taught his disciples incredible truth here, not just practical living truth, but this is what life will be like in the millennium. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
If we turn our attention now to Joshua chapter 18, beginning with verse 1, one of the most famous places in Israel's history, and it's not because God chose it, but because they chose it. Chapter 18, verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Now, for over 350 years, this is where the tabernacle in the wilderness and the Ark of the Covenant rested. For over 350 years, kind of fenced off. Nobody's allowed to walk there because that's where the tent of meeting was for 350 years. Now, the hills on all the sides around it look like this. Very, very slow, gentle, sloping hills. And what they have discovered is all those hills around it are covered with broken pottery because the 12 tribes of Israel used to camp surrounding this area. So all the way on all four sides, like in a, a donut, this was the donut hole. The tabernacle of the wilderness was in the middle. And whenever Israel would come together for a feast of atonement or feast of tabernacles, whenever they would come up to worship, they came here to Shiloh. And this was the tent of meeting that was there in the middle of it. It was a temporary place. It was never meant to be permanent. But this is where the tent of the meeting was established in Shiloh, some of the pottery there that they've discovered from around it. But one of the reasons they know that that one center area here was the place where the tent was is because everything else is covered with these broken pieces of pottery, except this one area, there's not a single piece of broken pottery in it. That was the holy area. That was the tent of meeting, the holy place, the holy of holies, the courtyard around it, all of that was there. Now, this is a very special place of the people of Israel to this day, because this is where most of the land was distributed to the tribes of Israel. This is where Eli, in fact, they found the cave that they believed that Eli lived in, okay? I mean, they, they found this cave where, where Samuel, the prophet Samuel, would have slept. So they found these things, and it's beautiful, and sometimes we get up there, and sometimes we don't get up there, depending on the weather, depending on the political circumstances, because, you know, we, we drive right by Ramallah and some of the more dangerous areas, but if it's very peaceful and everything, sometimes we take the, the group up there. It's kind of a hard walk. It looks like it's an easy walk, but I promise you, getting there is a hard trek. And getting back, going downhill is not so bad, but going uphill <laughs> is, is pretty rough. So then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Now notice, this is a perfect location. It, it's like a basin, and the people of Israel are all around it on the hill so they can all see, but it's not the place that the Lord will choose. Now, how many times have you heard me say that all during this last five weeks, all through Deuteronomy, all through Joshua, both Joshua and Moses kept referring to the place that the Lord will choose. And we saw that they, they conquered the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek but they never took control of the city of Jerusalem. Instead, they left it alone until the Jebusites took back over it, and it took until David, hundreds of years later, finally drive the Jebusites out. But 
the tabernacle could have been on Mount Moriah all this time earlier. So I told you, I always have question marks in my Bible. Why did they not seek for the place? Why did they not, why were they not desirous about a permanent location for the temple of God, the place that God would choose? Why did it take hundreds of years until David? I have no answers. I just have lots of question marks in my Bible. Verse 2. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Now he said, why, why are you so content just to hang out in temporary lives? I know you've gotten used to living a temporary life. I know you've gotten used to living, so to speak, out of your suitcases. But he said, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Now, here's the truth. And, you know, there's not a lot of great things in this passage for me to sit down and share with you devotionally, because a lot of it is the distribution of the land. But here is a great truth. There are some people who have no ambition for the promises of God. Now, as a pastor, I have to be honest with you. I've I've sat back as your pastor for 40 years and just shaken my head in wonder at times. You, you see people that have a great ambition to see all the promises of God fulfilled in their life, to see healing, to see abundance, to see a home, to see a business started. They have great ambition for the promises of God, to receive what God has promised. And there are other people that just kind of, yeah, I'm happy with my life the way it is. I'm practicing blessed contentment. No, you're practicing blessed laziness. Forgive me. I told you today I'd say some pretty blunt things. Now, now some of you, as Moses said to the people of Israel, you, you have circled this mountain long enough. It's time to get moving. As Joshua would now say to them, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? It amazes me how many people, every time I, I push to see something accomplished for the church, they go, ah, Pastor, we can delay this a while longer, and we can delay this a while longer. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know, if we already had Tower 7 done, and I was living in the building, I could be doing such a better broadcast. I could be meeting the members, making sure the food is distributed. Instead, I'm stuck out here in a condo in the middle of nowhere. I'm sitting there thinking, it's so easy for us to sit back and just allow life to happen and be happy, my friends, would you please get some more aggressiveness on your inside to go after the promises of God? Would you get some more aggressiveness to go after the house and lot that God has for you? Would you get some more aggressiveness to go after that business that God wants you to start, that promotion that God wants you to have? How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? It's already yours. God made you the promise. God gave it. I'm preaching now. I'm not doing devotions. But some of you, if you were in that house and lot right now, life would be a lot easier. You would have more space for the family. It would be in a cooler environment. It would be in a less congested, less, less dangerous environment. Everything would be so much easier for you right now if you had simply pushed and gotten that promise fulfilled in your life. Just saying, he said, Pastor, that's kind of confrontational this morning. Please forgive me. I love you. I don't, I don't say this by way of correction. 
I say this by way of the same thing I look at my own life and say, you know, Dave, you, you let everybody dilly-dally and you didn't push and you didn't push and you didn't push. How much more would you be accomplishing for the people of God right now if you were living there in the church building because you know God wanted you to do that? Some of you, how much better would life be for your family if you had pushed harder and you were in that house a lot right now? See, sometimes we sit around and we blame God, and God says, how long will you put off going in and take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Sometimes there needs to get some holy aggressiveness on your insides, and you pursue the promises of God. Verse 4, provide three men from each tribe, and I will send send them out that they may set out and go up and up and down the land. And they shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances. He said, hey, go check it out. See what's appropriate for everybody. And then he shall come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue to notice. He gave the ten spies decisions this time. He said, three men from each tribe. He said, sorry, right, you've got 12 tribes. You've got 36 men. You're going to go through and you're going to check out all of this land. And you're going to write descriptions based on inheritance. What is there in each land? How many cities? What kind of fields? What kind of crops can it grow? How much rain does it receive? So he gave them detailed descriptions. He didn't let them come back and say, well, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. See, the the first 10 spies, they, they started making decisions rather than a detailed gathering of information. Joshua had been one of those 10 spies. He knew how people start making decisions rather than become information gatherers. Let me say that again. He knew how people love to be decision makers rather than information gatherers. So he gives them a detailed job description. You are a information gatherer and you are to gather information for this purpose. And then come to me. He said, you don't do anything with this. You don't go talk to the people. See, Joshua learned the lessons. And this is something you should make a note in your Bible. Joshua knew how to give directions to the spies because of the failures of the past. Joshua had learned from his past. They will write a description of it in view to their inheritance and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in the seven divisions and bring the descriptions here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. So it was there at Shiloh that the land was distributed to the last seven tribes. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. This is why as pastors we don't do business. Our ministry is our heritage. It is our legacy. Our legacy is not a business that we build. Our Heritage, our legacy, is the ministry. And Gad and Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down the land and write a description of it, and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord at Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down on the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. 
And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. Chapter 11. Oh, hey, look at what time it is. Chapter 11, verse 1. The lot of the tribe of Benjamin. Let me see. All right, folks, I want you to continue to read the rest of chapter 18 and the rest of chapter 19 for the distribution of the land. But let me just give you a couple of thoughts here out of chapter 20 before we run out of time today. I got the preaching too much. I'm sorry. I want you to notice in chapter 20, we have the distribution of the cities of refuge. Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge. Now, these cities of refuge, and we go on here through the passage, these are the cities, verse 9, designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourners among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Now, these cities of refuge were basically part of the justice system of Israel to make sure that there was equality of decisions, that there was impartiality in decisions. There are times that things happen. Say there's a man carrying bricks on top of a building, and he trips and falls, and one of the bricks flies off the edge of the building and lands on the head of somebody's grandmother, who is loved by everybody in the village. Well, the people of the village are going to kill him because he murdered Lola, and everybody loved Lola. And there is no impartiality in that village. But any Israelite, any alien living in the land, could flee from the city and get to a city of refuge. And as long as he stayed there, no one could touch him. Now, if the avenger of blood came, people of that village where Lola died, came and said, he murdered her. Well, the people there have no... They have no feelings toward Lola. They have no feelings toward this man. They're completely impartial, an impartial jury of his peers. Did you get that? An impartial jury of peers, people just like him, but they're impartial. They have no relationships in it. We're not dealing with big cities now, remember. We're dealing with a lot of small villages and a lot of small towns where everybody knows what everybody ate for breakfast. So in this way, there's these cities of refuge, and people often wonder, why were these cities of refuge there? It's part of the justice system so that there is impartiality in justice, so that an innocent man who just made a mistake does not die. All right, we'll see you tonight at 7 o'clock as we continue Hoopamone. <laughs>